So my name is Amy Grant, uh, originally from Halibut, First Nations in Newfoundland. I have lived in uh, Dubuktuk, Mi'kma'ki, which in English is Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, for basically all of my life. Where do you see us going for gender equality in the next five to ten years? Gender equality, yes, we need to strive for gender equality, but, but we can't have gender equality in 2030 if, if we don't have a planet. In indigenous, a lot of indigenous practices and, and um, cultural practices, the earth is our mother, the earth is female, and the way that we treat the earth is synonymous to the way that we treat women, and it's disgusting and it's deplorable. We think that we can use and abuse and take as much as we want and not give anything back. So in five to ten years, I really want to see people kicking themselves in the butt and living more sustainable lives. It really is disappointing that certain groups of people think that other groups of people are less than. That even happens within the feminist movements. Yes. Um, and, and seeing things holistically, like how do our, our planet, our experiences and feminism all kind of come together and, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, even if you look at like the suffragettes, um, they did not want black women to have the vote. They didn't want pe women of color or even men of color to have the vote. Um, and so, yeah, they did a great thing, but only for them, <laughs> for their small niche group of people. So we have to remember that like, the biases within the feminist movement are historically rooted. Pregnancy, birth, parenting, it means so many different things to so many different people. What does living a healthy reproductive life mean in the context of reproductive justice? This podcast is not your traditional healthy babies, healthy pregnancy kind of gig. It's designed to challenge you, outrage you, pique your curiosity, and maybe sometimes have you not in agreement. Our birth conversations are the kind that often get left out of the mainstream. I promise, like life, we'll leave you with some answers, but perhaps more questions. These are birth conversations that matter. These are the birth talks. Are you ready? So Layla, we, we've been hearing a lot from different people about where they want Canada to go in 2020 when it comes to gender equality. Um, I just want to know, like, when we think about intersectionality in the gender equality movement, um, for me, the fact that GBA+, plus, as the government knows it, or intersectionality as it's originally coined, is a newer... Uh, concept that people are finally accepting. What is this, what does this say about where the feminist movement has been and where it has come? Um, I always think about feminism has the fact that feminism has its roots in a very white Western history, right? That's the that's the origins. Those are the origins of of feminism. Some of the earliest suffragettes were, in fact, um, while they were advocating for the right for women to vote, they were also actively against the interests of Black and Indigenous people and women. So those histories are interlinked and those realities are interlinked. And so we have to look at it where the root of it is from. It's interesting when we talk about GBA plus, and we talk about um, saying this context, indigenous communities, indigenous peoples, not to say that it's a monolith. Um, important to keep in mind the diversity of indigenous communities and what we now call Canada. But a lot of indigenous peoples um, 
reject the notion of feminism because of those histories and because of the fact that Indigenous communities have had, and even this would be true for um, other nations in the world as well, they have had very distinct <clears throat> histories of what gender is and what sex is. So um, when we talk about feminism in a very in a specific sense of it being an entity that comes from um, roots that are Western, it can, there is a delicate balance of not imposing it on communities who already have had a lot imposed on them, right? In the context of colonialism, in the context of, of um, you know, colonial violence. So there's all those layers I like to think of the fact that while we've made progress, we definitely need to work more towards centering the voices of people that often we pay lip service to through, and the lip service often is paid through people who, who hold those same old privileged experience and experiences and social markers, right? So I think it's time where we start to, within the Ottawa feminist community, within the global feminist community, we start to diversify who gets to sit at the table, or maybe we even need to question why there is a table in the first place, right? Mm. So, mm. yeah. I think that really resonates with me because I remember when I first started working with women's organizations, I just think I remember the conversations that we used to have the debate among feminists about intersectionality. And this was a conversation not that long ago that there was no place for intersectionality in gender equality because if we focused on race and class and sexual orientation and blah, all, you know, different identity factors, gender would be forgotten. And so uh, I really resonate with what you say around the fact that feminism did come from a very colonial root. Um, uh, I also embrace that gender equality is something that is much needed. And how do we really make space, right, for, as you said, different voices um, to sit at the table? And why do we even need that table? So we are going to talk uh, to Dr. Karen Lawford, who is an assistant professor um, at Queen's University. Um, she's an Indigenous midwife who is doing amazing work around increasing access to um, sexual and reproductive health rights for Indigenous people on reserve in Canada. My name is Karen Lawford. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Gender Studies at Queen's University. I am a registered midwife in Ontario, and I'm an Aboriginal midwife from the Treaty 3 area. You and Shirley, some of the founding members of the National Aboriginal Council of Midwives, um, have been so inspiring to the work um, that midwives have been doing oh, in Canada for, for families Absolutely, across. and thank you so much for drawing attention to the work of other Indigenous midwives. Part of the challenge of, not the challenge, but part of the, one of the aspects of winning this award is remembering that I'm not the only person doing good work in terms of trying to improve maternal child health in this country and also in other um, countries in the world. So I'm just a placeholder right now. And of course, I did um, specific things that garnered the attention of the nominees. But again, there's lots of amazing Indigenous midwives in Canada that also are doing great work. So 
I, from a perspective of um, midwifery and sexual and reproductive health rights, um, why is it so important to have um, uh, care specifically for Indigenous communities? So Indigenous people in Canada have experienced a particular kind of colonialism and interaction with those who have settled Canada, so white settlers. And with that type of interaction came the Euro, the Euro-Western biomedical model, which erased purposely um, and replaced Indigenous ways of knowing, including health and wellness. So my particular perspective, and I think this is agreed upon by a lot of Indigenous healthcare providers and those that support Indigenous healthcare providers, is that Indigenous peoples actually have health and wellness practices that are that are really important to our way of being and our identity. And that's not to say that we should um, ignore the Western practices of the biomedical model. It's just that we need to have both of those particular perspectives in our ways of achieving health and wellness for our own people. So in terms of midwifery services, the particular midwifery model that we have practiced in Canada, keeping in mind there's not that many provinces actually have an education system, is very biomedically based. This seems to have somehow erased in the implementation of midwifery services the importance of Indigenous ways of knowing. So I advocate, along with many other Indigenous midwives, the reinsertion of our ways of knowing so that the midwifery services or obstetrical services or maternal child health services actually include our ways of understanding the world. Where do you think Canada still needs to go in 2020 when it comes to achieving um, gender equality or even access, just access to sexual and reproductive health rights for all? Canada. Canada. What should I say about Canada? If, <laughs> if we were to imagine that the government of Canada represents Canadians, it doesn't actually represent Indigenous people within its governance structures. It's very much based on a Western colonial governance system that purposely excludes Indigenous people. So if we want to consider, for example specifically maternal child health for Indigenous peoples, the government of Canada needs to purposely make space in every province and territory so that Indigenous care providers can actually provide care to their own people. So, for example, for midwifery, the government of Canada could be sorting, could be supporting the provision of Indigenous midwifery services on reserves, as well as registered midwifery services on reserves, and particularly creating funding spaces and resource allocations for Indigenous people that live on and off their communities. For example, Toronto is such a large centre with so many Indigenous people. Are there enough services that are actually provided within the context of Indigenous ways of knowing and the way that we gather the knowledge that we have and our worldview? I think the um, seventh generation Birthing Birth Centre actually is a good example of that, but there definitely needs to be more of those types of organizations, not just in the GTA, but all across Canada. So what's the conditions like for um, those who are um, giving birth or pregnant um, on reserve? So right now, the government of Canada at a federal level provides 
primary health care, which is usually provided by nurses from across the country. So around 36 weeks of pregnancy, women are evacuated routinely, meaning they leave their communities to relocate themselves into southern urban settings. So most people in, for example, Manitoba are evacuated down to Winnipeg to wait to give birth. And of course, they sit there, they can sit there for a few days, they can sit there up to a month waiting to go into labor to receive obstetrical services in a tertiary care center. So that's what it's like for most in First Nations people who live on reserves. Mm. Do you think Canada is um do you think Canada is committed to actually um actually offering better services for indigenous people in Canada both on reserve and off? I think if I were to separate the government of Canada as the government versus the actual care providers, I think the government of Canada is actually not interested or at least hasn't shown any demonstrable action towards providing excellent health care for those who live on reserves. Rather, their go-to response to providing health care is to actually move them off the land to urban centers. That really says something about the direction of this particular government. If I were to move that conversation into one of health care providers, largely nurses who work on reserve, definitely there's a major commitment by those nurses from my experience and engagement with those nurses working on reserve. So I'm separating the, the providers who work on reserve mm-hmm. versus the government bodies that don't allow and don't facilitate the provision of care on reserves. And that's been happening for well over 100 years. So this is just another way um, through health of removing Indigenous peoples from their land. Mm. So what needs to change, do you think, Karen? What needs to change? This country does not have a maternity care plan for the country. There's not one at any provincial or territorial level. Unfortunately, the the burden of this lack of planning and coordination is actually then something that's actually held by individual people who are pregnant and giving birth which is really unfortunate that we just can't seem as a country and through our governance systems to get our stuff together, to have a coordinated care plan so that we provide the best quality of care in the world. I think one of the reasons our maternal um, mortality rate and our IMRs, infant mortality rates, are are actually quite good in comparison to many other countries is just that as a country, we tend to be we tend to have access more than more so than other countries to things like the social determinants of health. However, when we look at that data and we look at Indigenous um, First Nations at Inuit infant mortality rates, those numbers are actually quite high for the IMRs, sometimes two, sometimes seven times higher than for in non-Indigenous infants. And of course, we don't know the maternal mortality rate for Indigenous people in this country because that data is simply not collected. But if we had a broad action plan, something to actually direct some communication between healthcare providers, between different government systems, I think that we could actually start to consider how we think and maybe we could act on that. In fact, I know we can, but the government of Canada is not leading this in any way, shape or form from what I can see, despite having committed 
to transferable health care services through the Canada Health Act. So what can health providers do? Because we heard that you, you, you kind of, you know, separated it out between the government can and then there's health care providers who are, who are actually providing services in a, in a more a holistic, sensitive way. So what's, what's the role of health care providers? You asked such a good question. I think healthcare providers right now are really quite frustrated with the lack of leadership by government officials. I think healthcare providers as a gen in a general sense are working really hard. There's a lot of attrition both within the education systems and in their qualifying years to full registration, as well as those that are actually full licensed healthcare providers. I think that this country is able to provide the healthcare that it does simply because we produce so many healthcare providers, as well as, you know, providing accessing other healthcare providers that are trained in other countries. So this is a health workforce issue in this country. What can what can healthcare providers do? I think they're really doing a lot right now, and we need some government leadership to actually give us direction to say this is the way it's going to be. I know that people spend a lot of time thinking about remuneration for healthcare providers, and that definitely can make a difference. But that's not one of the fundamental issues. I think that putting all these challenges and pressures on the health work- workforce, it's literally, I believe, and I think the rest of the literature can support me on this, it's a lack of leadership in defining what is our what is our plan as a country for our health workforce? And actually, Canada is one of the few countries that doesn't have a health workforce area at the federal level to actually tell us what are the health care needs and who are those health care providers that are going to provide those services. So what can health care... Yeah, so I, I just think of what can health care providers do. I think they're already doing a lot, and I don't want to discount the work that particular associations are doing, whether it's medical associations, physician associations, or midwifery or nurses associations. It's just trying to get that all together. It seems to be lost on governments across the board in this country. I wish that people understood that Indigenous people, particularly First Nations at Newit, do not receive the health, same health care services that non-Indigenous people receive in this country. And there are legislative reasons for that that are historical and current right now. So we think of these things, these challenges, these differences as something happened before, you know, some strange time at the beginning of the country, but it's actually still happening now. So when we look at the health indicators for Indigenous people in this country, it's still an indication of the ongoing marginalization of Indigenous people. I think that's very powerful. I think uh, a personal note, I just watched the uh, documentary on Kenesataki for 270 years, 270 years of resistance. And uh, I'm shocked that we don't show that in schools. It's really appalling right? The stuff that we hide. There's a lot of things, yeah, that we, that Canadians are not shown the history of how this country is formed and how it continues to be formed. I think the protests for Wet'suwet'en through social media and the way it's being um, played out in the media versus social media, I think we're seeing how much discrepancy between what is allowed to be shown to us through social media sorry, through mainstream media versus social media, which actually can get to the, the the details of some really terrible incongruencies in just existence in this country. I think definitely 
when also we talk about intersectionality. The fact is, I never see it as gender being forgotten. I think gender, for people who experience multiple marginalities, their gender is racialized or their race is gendered. So it's it's so intertwined, which is again where the importance of lived experience comes in. When you live a life and when you live a an existence that is a certain way, 24-7, you're in you're, you know, in a body, in an experience that is yours and that is not part of the mainstream. These are not it's not an option for you to not think about mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than for someone who may come at it from a space as an ally, may come at it from a space of curiosity or whatever, right? So I think that's where the importance of centering lived experience and diverse peoples comes in. And I think that's where, I wouldn't say we're failing, but that's where we need actively more support and more change. We need flexibility in our systems, in workplaces and flexibility i think is the one way in which we can actively bring diverse change makers um into more decision making roles and accountability of of where our privilege lies right recognition and just uh being able to be comfortable with the uncomfortable absolutely i 100 percent agree with you that i think when we talk about change when we talk about learning discomfort has to be front and center 